You are listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. This talk was given at 35 West Shelton Avenue. For more information, visit us at circleofhope.church. For the last uh, 13 years, Johnny Rashid has been a pastor in Circle of Hope, and he has literally um, been teaching and leading us to learn the language of lament and um, hope. (laughs) In so many ways, Johnny has embodied um, the good news of the gospel, and he has been leading us to do the same. I especially love Johnny's um, love of the Bible and the way that he comes alive in um, the study and teaching of the Word. It is a particular gift of his. So I'm grateful that Johnny's here um, to share a talk with us and also um, for the opportunity for us as a congregation to bless him and speak words um, back to him in affirmation and blessing and prayer as we send him off. So there'll be time to do that at the end. Um, If you uh, weren't aware of that, just um, have in mind that there's space for you um, to to recall a memory, to speak a blessing, or to pray a prayer over Johnny. Um, But for now, I want to invite him up to share a talk with us. Johnny, come on up. I'm going to read from the phone. The printer's broken at Frankfurt Ave for a week, so that's why I don't don't ordinarily do this. But I feel like I've never done it for like 13 years. In the last two weeks, I have, so... Yes, there's a new time for everything. Um, Thank you for that warm welcome, Julie. I was talking to someone today. Um, I really shouldn't be doing things like this, but I was talking to someone. And you know, Circle of Hope's all changing. Things are moving around. And I was talking to somebody who attends Frankfurt Avenue, lives in Germantown. And I was like, maybe you should just go to Julie's. You know, I I know that's not what I'm supposed to do. But I was like, she's such an awesome pastor, you know. And I do think so. I think that y'all are blessed to have her. She's a dear friend of mine, and what an honor it's been to serve alongside of her um, for the time that she's been a pastor. I am indebted to her, and to so many of you, too. Um, and I'm glad to be here. I'm excited to be here. Um, I'm going to try to... I noticed that as I was doing the words of institution, I was moving too fast, because earlier today, I... Uh, I made the, like, like I was supposed to go see the Sixers and beat the Wizards tonight, and I had it all planned out. So my friend Donovan dropped me off at Uncle Bobby's, and I was like, great, I'll just walk then to the place, and then my friend Joel will come pick me up, and then I won't have my car in some strange place in Philadelphia later on in the evening, you know, because who knows what could happen. And then I get a call from, my, from Kristen, my kid's mom, and... She's, Agatha, my kid's been sick all week. Um, so now the doctor's like, if she gets a fever again, she has to go back to the ER. So that happened, right? And it was, I mean, it just hit. It's like 100.4, so it's not even, you know, I wouldn't even medicate that at that point, but they want to see her, right? Because um, she was there earlier and worse shape, and I think she's getting better, and it's just a difficult circumstance. So I had to get her sister. But of course, I don't have a car, you know? 
And Kristen had just given all of her booster seats to her parents today because they're going to Florida later and they're going to rent a car and they need them. So like, not great timing. So Allison Ware gave me her car and I drove across to back to North Philly and here, you know. And I admit I was driving a little bit uh, with some energy, you know, like a little bit like uh, enthusiastically. Um, and I definitely blew a red light. So Allison, if you get a ticket, I thought, I really, I just thought you're gonna give them a ticket. I don't think there was a camera there, but you know, just let me know, we'll work it out, okay? Um, so like, I came back with that kind of energy of moving fast, and I was like, you gotta slow down. So I'm gonna take, I'm, I haven't even started my talk yet, so I'm, gonna, I'm going real slow tonight. Um, let's read from the Bible, shall we? Now this is, now the lectionary picked this whole long passage, so we're gonna have to read it, okay? I followed the, 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 the revised common lectionary, um, and this is the passage. This is the woman at the well from John 4. This is the NRSV. Now, do we have a portable microphone of some kind? Yes. Because there's people on Zoom too, right? I hope y'all, if you did commute, just do it. If you haven't done communion yet, just take anything you have and do it. You can still do it. It can be water, a chip, or anything. I didn't, I didn't address the Zoom people. So this is going to go to someone. Now, now someone must, has to jump at the opportunity here to read. And it's too, if, if you don't want to read the whole thing, just stop reading and then someone else will pick up. Anyone want to do that? What do we pronounce? Oh, that's a good one. I think Sikar sounds pretty good. Sikar, Sikar? I don't know. Corinne, how do you pronounce it? I always say with confidence. Pronounce it with confidence. We'll believe you. No matter what? No matter what, go for it, commit. That's how white men talk all the time. There's, there's a lot of confidence, you know? They're like, yeah. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone to the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Oh, good. Now we're switching. Oh, Kathleen's got it now. 
so sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You worship what you do not know. You worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit. <laughs> for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came. They were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want? Or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He, can, he cannot be the Messiah, can he? They left the city and were on their way to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Surely no one has brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do not say four months more, then comes the harvest. Or do you not say four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them and he stayed there two days and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is truly the savior of the world. John 4, 5 to 42. Let's pray together. Lord, let the words of our mouths and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my Redeemer. Thank you for reading that, Kathleen and Kate. Once again, I'm so glad that you're welcoming me here tonight. And I'm honored to offer a message to you. And more than that, I'm deeply honored 
to have served as one of your pastors for the last 12, going on 13 years. It's an immense privilege to hold the office of pastor and to have a chance to shepherd the beloved of God, such as yourselves. Some of you I've known forever, it feels like, since I was 21 years old. I slept over at Kate and Trevor's house when I was 21 years old. I thought it was so cool to be their friend. I still think it is. So it's such a, it's, it is a great honor to me to be here. In so many ways, you have helped me grow in my faith. Grow up in my faith, I grew up in circle. I, st I started attending circle when I was 19 years old. And basically spent 19 years in the church after that. So you've been my home for a long time. And you've helped me move into this vocation as pastor. And I'm grateful for the, for the gift you gave me, for the calling you gave me, and for the chance to continue to pastor somewhere else. That's real special to me. It, has, it let, leaves a mark on me forever. And I'm so grateful for it. And I'm happy to be on a new adventure too with West Philly Mennonite Fellowship and bring them the best that I've got here, that I've got from here, that's still with me. It's not without pain or sorrow. This departure is bittersweet. I mean, I was just 24 when I became a pastor. That's like, like yikes, you know? <laughs> Double yikes. And I'm really proud. Like, I'm so grateful for my old friend, Joshua Grace. And how that, boy, he is such a big softy. And he really discipled my loud ass over the years. He's still my homie. But what a chance Joshua gave me. He gave me the keys to the car. Pastoring is a lot like driving. Um, and the hard thing about leadership in leadership when you're young is that you're given a tool that's powerful and fun and cool and you kind of figure out how to wield it. It reminds me of my first car. It was a 1992 Volkswagen GTI. I drove that thing so hard and so fast it ended up in a ditch a few months later. Weeks later. I don't even know how long it was. And honestly, I remember I, remember I gave a cell leader training called, like, how to lead a cell like I drive a car, you know. There you go, folks. You live and you learn, or at least you try to, you know. No consciousness of, like, you start so young and you kind of, and, and, you know, there's energy, there's excitement, and I, 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 I'm glad I had that stuff, you know. But you, made a, you make mistakes along the way. You try to learn. You try to grow. I want to share some of that process with you. I told the coordinators, which is like a body of over overseers for the pastors and other things, that I trust Circle of Hope will move into its next era with wisdom and with grace 
And I want to depart in that spirit. And I really just want to credit you all for your journey and, and where you are going next. I do think Julie is leading you admirably and listening well. And I think she's do, doing a very cool thing. Um, but you all, you're all taking a big step of faith and it's, uh, it's unprecedented. And I think that you and the other congregations will um, grow as a result of that. You know, we'll all live and learn together. And I know that the timing isn't great. You know, and I, it's particularly painful in some ways. You know, because the congregation of Frankfurt Avenue is figuring all this out too. They're losing their building and their pastor on top of it. So, they're, they're, you know, say a prayer for them. But when it comes to leaving a community that's been so meaningful to me, there is no timing that's particularly good. There's no shortage of loss in leaving. And I'll, cher I'll, hold, I'll cherish these memories that I've held. You know, you're really unforgettable people. And serving here was difficult for some seasons. But I, I leave with a gratitude and fondness with a lighter heart, ready for what God has for me next. And I pray and ask for your blessing. I've been able to reflect on my time at Circle of Hope for the last several months and weeks. And in one of the interviews or the Q&A with WPMF, they asked me, like, what are you most proud of of your work at Circle of Hope? And I said, look, I was, I'm very proud to have planted a church in North Philly, help grow the church, I was proud to lead a merger between two congregations in, in a contentious circumstance. And then I said, but honestly, I, and I said, I was really happy to play a part in helping Circle of Hope become LGBT inclusive. But I paused like I am now because it wasn't just an accomplishment. It's not just something that I'm proud of. Um, it's something that I'm ashamed didn't happen sooner. You know, when I look back at that, I'm happy about where we are, but I am sad about the harm that I caused along the way. It's real, you know. The truth is, because of how I led at times, there's people who fell away from the church, who lost faith, who won't come back. Not just to circle, but to Jesus. There's, that's, there's a cost to that. And I want, I want to bear the cost. I want to bear the cross of those choices. And I lament them. Even though I am proud of where we ended up and I am proud of my part in that, there is grief when you look back. And that brings me to this week's passage. John 4, 
This Samaritan woman, nameless woman, approaches Jesus. And Jesus is thirsty, asks for a drink. Can we get the passage up here? Yeah. I'm not going to exegete the whole thing. It's too long. So I'm just going to touch it. Let's get the first part of it here. No, this is it. Thank you. And the writer makes reference to Jacob and Joseph here, right in, right in the beginning. Near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Why does he do that? Why does the writer bring up this old story? Because the Samaritans themselves see themselves as descendants of Joseph's son, Joseph the son of Jacob. That's important because it demonstrates that the Jews and the Samaritans have a common ancestry. They have a common humanity. They come from the same group. Now, I've spoken about this passage a lot over the years. You know, who is this woman? How is she relating to Jesus? And I want to read it with you together to find a few ways that I've read it in the past and then relate it back to how I read it now and even connect it to my journey towards LGBT inclusion. They have a common ancestry. That's the first thing that the writer established. These two groups that have animosity towards one another come from the same ancestry. Jesus asks for a drink from his ancestral sister and she denies him because he's a Jew and she's a Samaritan. She doesn't cross the line. Jesus dares to. And this line is the result of two things, ethnic conflict and tradition. And I want to pause there because oftentimes commentators will say that Jesus is violating a law here or even violating the Torah. But he is not doing that. The lack of association between Jews and Samaritans a motif that's famously recounted in Luke's parable, the, um, the Good Samaritan, as we call it, is the result of historical conflict. But there's no law forbidding it. Nor is there a law forbidding Jewish people and Jewish rabbis from relating to women. That is not against the rules. It's just a traditional prejudice. Now, some rabbis would say that rabbis aren't supposed to talk to Jews, but that is an interpretation. That is an understanding of tradition. It's, not, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of a legislative opinion, okay? There is some tradition, but there's, some, there's a variety of interpretations. Jesus isn't breaking the law when he does this. There's no ritual purity law that suggests this is illegal. But Jesus is risking his reputation, he's risking honor, he's risking public disapproval and all the things that come with that. But he's not against, he's not violating the law. The conversation continues and Jesus remarks to her that if she only knew who she was talking to, she'd be asking for living water. Jeremiah calls God a spring of living water. The psalmist compares the deers panting for the water like our longing for God. Water represents God's power, God's nourishment. And and using this divine language, Jesus is demonstrating two things. One, the superiority of a spring of water that provides water for you constantly versus a well. And spring water tastes better than well water, too. That's what I I think, anyway. People, what do you think about that? Is that true, generally? I drink tap water. You know, like, I don't spend a lot of time near wells and drinking water from springs. Don't do that in Philadelphia, I think. 
He's demonstrating the superiority of a spring over a well and also his superiority to Jacob. John's gospel has a very high Christology. That's a big word for like what we think about Jesus. And so it's in line with the gospel. The woman thinks it's real water. He's con- she's confused. And this Samaritan woman, like Nicodemus in chapter 3, the born again passage, they don't understand. What is this new birth? What is this water? What are you talking about? They can't grasp what Jesus is saying. Nicodemus confuses the birth to a literal birth, and this woman's confusing this figurative water for real water. They keep talking, and Jesus asks her, you know, call your husband. She doesn't have one. She's been married five times. And the man she is with is now her husband. Now, we pause in the text now because a common assumption is what? She's loose, right? She's sleeping with many different men. That's the idea that's often superimposed on the story. There's no, there's, the text does not suggest that. There's nothing like that in the Bible. So what do we bring to the text? How do we read it? What prejudices do we bring? So if, we're, if, if, if we think it's remarking on her sexuality and her promiscuity, that interpretation says more about us than it does the Bible, right? So, so exegete yourself. Find out what's happening. We don't know why she's had five divorces or five dead husbands, you know, like the, or like some, some issue. Or why she's living with a man. But nothing is necessarily nefarious. Of course, the suspicion that we would bring to this passage, a lot of people would. Even then. So now you're playing a part in the story. You're getting to know yourself, but also the assumption of others. You know, her, her life may be a matter of public discussion. We like to comment on people's marriages and their divorces and what they're going through. Circle of Hope loves to do that. So there's all sorts of things that, sorry, there's all sorts of things that happens in that context, right? And it's the same with us. And Jesus doesn't even extend the point at all. He just moves on. But he has insight into her life. She t- he, this man told me everything I've done. She calls him a prophet. She points out where the ethnic conflict is between the groups, where to worship. That's where the fight is. You think we're supposed to worship here, and we think we're supposed to worship here. And Jesus will go on to say, no, I am the locus of worship. You worship me and in me. He is the locus of worship. Believers of all ethnicities will come and worship him. And she pivots to the talk of the Christ, the Messiah, who will come and show us everything and tell us everything. And Jesus tells this Samaritan woman that he is the Christ. It's an amazing moment in the Bible. The secret of Jesus of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when he hides all of his stuff, he heals someone, don't tell anybody, I don't want anyone to know, reveals his true identity to this woman. It's a big moment. This is the kind of thing that in John 10, Jesus will say this, he'll say, before Abraham, I am, and then they will kill him. The rest of the book, from 11 all the way down to 21, is about how we're gonna kill Jesus. So you get like, uh, you know, it's 11 chapters because John 11 is Lazarus, right? So like, so the the first section of the book, all the signs and things that Jesus is doing. And then when he says that to the religious leaders, he is, he is um, submitting to the possibility of death. And to this woman, he gives her this detail, this story. 
He boldly proclaims this to an ethnic woman. This Christ brings, and then Jesus brings true worship to her. This is not confined to a time or a place or a people group. He does say it comes from the Jews. Keep that in mind. But it's not limited to the Jews. He is not violating Jewish tradition in any way. He is extending it. He is grafting the Gentiles to the promise, just like Paul says, right? Something new is happening. It's not exclusive. It's not anti-Jewish. It's in addition to. We, we, New Testament commentators will often bring some sort of uh, anti-Judaism to the text. Okay? And there's reasons for that. That's another moment where you have to interpret yourself. Anti-Jewish harm all over Christendom. You know, the Holocaust was the third time that Christians tried to exterminate Jews, Jewish people throughout European continental history. It's an old story, rife with conflict. So when we read it, we have to be careful because the Gospel of John does make a polemic, a, a strong written argument, that's what polemic means, against early rabbinic Judaism. But when Gentiles get a hold of it and then they start acting anti-Jewish, we get into big trouble, okay? So that's why I, I detail that he's not violating the law. He is still in the Jewish tradition. It's important for us to understand, in my opinion. This God is spirit is what, is what Jesus says. And the spirit moves wherever it wants to. The spirit moves, it blows, it moves where it wants. And then this, this spirit moves among the Samaritans. Even as the disciples scoffed at the incident. The disciples, by the way, do not say anything about that he's talking to a woman. And a key indicator that this isn't a problem, strictly speaking. It's like the writer knows that this assumption will come and is refuting it. So, to review the incident above, some say he was violating the law by talking to a woman and a Samaritan. Some say it was even worse because she's a loose woman. But the text doesn't give us that. And the former isn't a matter of law, but tradition. And what we would call like a cultural bias right now. When it comes to LGBT inclusion, using this basic framework, we can judge queer folks as dirty. You give them the same assumption that you gave to the woman. You know, I've been called dirty, you know, by people very close to me. That's one thing, you know, just like she is not to be associated with, if you approach queer people with that same kind of like a white glove, you know, you don't want to get dirty. Problematic prejudice. Even if you think you're saving them, right? They have some filth on them. So we have to be careful when we assign purity culture to queer people. Some people are LGBT inclusive, but they just like control F search straight for gay. And then nothing changes in the theology besides that. You feel me? Like they just replace, it's like the same thing. It's just like, oh, but they're gay. You know, that's not, that's not deep enough, right? There's still problems with that. We can consider associating with them as a violation of the law, right? Like the anti-drag the anti show bill that just passed in Tennessee, right? The drag show is going to make our kids dirty. Some problem with that. Meanwhile, the Department of Children's Services in Tennessee has kids sleeping on the floor. So, like, they, uh, come on, Tennessee. Like, get your, get, your, get your house in order, 
You know, like, what do you, are you, do you really care about kids? Because your DCS suggests you don't. Now you're worried about trans, about drag shows. Viol so now associating with them to violate is literally happening, you know, right here in the U.S. Or we revel in the fact as Christians, if you want to be inclusive, that you're breaking the law, you're violating the Bible, and you're proud of doing that. I'm just saying, no, you're not. The violators of the homophobic people don't get excited about the fact that you're contradicting the Bible because don't submit the text to homophobic people as if they know what the interpretation is. Stand your guard. Don't give up the territory. Hold on to it. They misuse it this way. They, they misinterpret this passage too. They add things to it. They describe the woman in such a, in such a way. So often when it comes to LGBT inclusion, we fall into these traps. But none of that is true. It's treated by our cultural bias, our unconscious bias, maybe even our conscious bias. But Jesus and the woman of the well saw through this, and it wasn't without historic harm. But it's not too late to grow and change and repent. You, you have to be able to do that. One way to curb your guilt is by just saying you never did anything wrong. And some people still do that. And they even do it about our body. But you, if you want to change, you have to repent. That's the point of the meal. We're submitting ourselves to Jesus so that he makes us whole. If you can't apologize, you're not getting anywhere. The whole faith is based on that. But if you think you're so good and so exceptionalistic that you never need to say sorry, you're never going to grow. You're not going to change. You're not moving with the Spirit. You're not moving where she blows. Circle of Hope was not always a welcoming place for queer people. LGBTQ, I say queer, uh, but you could say LGBTQIA or something else. You know, I'm comfortable with that phrase, but you know, definitely if you're talking to LGBTQIA folks, you want to ask them what's good for them. You know, millennials and Zoomers tend to be better with that, but you talk to a Gen Xer or a Boomer, you start saying queer, some of them are going to be like, hey, we're not ready for that. So just a just little nomenclature from what I've come to understand. I was a 21-year-old cell leader. I knew Circle of Hope was kind of weird about LGBT stuff. I never really talked about it. We kind of avoided the conversation. Pastors wouldn't give you a straight answer. For some reason, you have to go to a cup of coffee to know what the truth was. It's kind of a tell, but like you didn't know. You avoid it. It's confusing, you know, indirect answer. You know, your kids eventually found that out about you as a parent. If you ask for something and your parents kind of like shuffle around, that's a no. But like, you know, we try to, we try to stay away from that no because we don't want to feel bad. I mean, I knew that our conservative denomination at the time, the Brethren in Christ, was not affirming, but I still wanted to welcome everybody. I still had the bug. I still wanted to include people. I wanted to grow the church. I really loved doing that. I still do. And I didn't know by including LGBTQIA people into my cell, I was putting them in harm's way. There's part of me that I couldn't even imagine why we would exclude them. I, I, I couldn't, it didn't even compute into my 21-year-old brain undergraduate at Temple, learning progressive things, why would we do such a thing? This church is so cool. Pro-justice, anti-war. I mean, I came to Circle of Hope because it was a, 
opposed to the war in Iraq. Remember that, 2003, March 2003? It was a long time ago. So why would this be different? But I eventually internalized the bigotry that excluded these folks and then became like a, a proponent of it. Had a thought and then changed my mind. Went with the, uh, the party line, that's what you do. And there was reasons for that. I enjoyed the affirmation I got from pastors. I enjoyed uh, the support I got. I was in a club, it felt cool. I wanted to do that, be a company person. So yeah, you, you adapt. That's, that's not good, that's bad, but I did it. I gotta tell you about it, you know? And you know, that kept me closeted too. So it's like, it's like you, you, like that, that sucks, right? Like I perpetrated harm and then I was a victim of what I perpetrated, you know? And this extends to other issues too regarding race and so on, but we're gonna stick with LGBT stuff today. And in 2008, I welcomed a few gay men into my cell. They were cool, happy to participate, insightful, interesting, definitely believers, it was really great. And then they bumped into the limits of our church. Someone on our email listserv called it the dialogue back then. Asked if Circle of Hope was included in an LGBTQIA friendly church website that lists like cool churches or whether it should be. And there was always a series of excuses as to why it wasn't, but, uh, but ultimately our leaders obfuscated the truth, you know? I even remember one of them saying, was try, I, he was trying to deliberately confuse somebody who was asking him a question. Like vocally, I was like, whoa, you're, you're trying to do that? And, but, but again, like, I have to emphasize, even if I felt badly about that or felt like it was weird, but I didn't say anything, it doesn't matter. You know, if I hid it under a bushel, no one sees the light. Like that doesn't, that is no excuse. Knowing better and not saying anything makes you complicit. And Circle of Hope at the time didn't want to make its stance clear. But the question was pushed, the dialogue changed. We heard all sorts of reasons why we shouldn't be having this dialogue on email and other things. We lost members in the process. I caused harm in the process, it was significant. This approach that we had, which was really in opposition to queer folks, but we called it a third way, caused harm. There wasn't a, this wasn't a creative path between poles. We had simply decided against queer people and just didn't say it. You know, I got family members that are like that, that want to be nice to me and talk to me and like ask me questions and like they're, they're, they want to know about my process and so on as a queer person. And I just got a bottle, get, get to the end of the conversation here. Are you gonna affirm me or are you not gonna affirm me? Come on, I, I, I'm not gonna do this dance with you just to find out like you're anti me. I can't, I'm not gonna do that. At least my dad just says it. You know, so, that, I mean, he didn't say it in the nicest words, but at least he does. You know what I mean? Like, just tell me the truth. If it's gonna be the same thing, you know, don't, 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 don't add all this politeness to it. As if that prevents harm. It just, uh, what it does is it erodes trust. So churches that are not direct, at least you know. 
And I'm not saying they don't cause harm, they do, but at least you know, at least you're not like pulled along. Like, uh, what do they say, baited and switched, right? We did eventually move, 2014, kind of like started flirting with this idea of inclusion. After a local reporter, who by the way was my roommate, was my debate partner in college. This is so weird, it was just a wild ride. I still talk to Ryan a little bit. He wrote a piece in, about uh, the church, including commentary from ousted gay members. I remember, like, he asked me questions, and I just acted like I didn't know the answer. It doesn't matter who told me to do that. I did it. And that's pretty shitty, you know what I mean? I'm sorry for that. I have regret about that. But we eventually seemed to, I don't know if we even framed it as like harm we caused. There was eager members ready to take a stand. And so we finally just let up. Why don't we just let them get married? And then we drafted a statement on marriage that included a clause about uh, faithful long-term relationships between couples of same-sex and same-sex relationships. Still a very flawed piece, but like the first step towards something. Um, what was it? I don't even know if I should say this, but it's in my head. A faithful response to desiring a moral sexual expression was the phrase that we used to describe queer people. So yeah, look, Corinne's, Corinne's laughing at me. Yeah, I have all the documents just tattooed in my brain, so I don't know. Uh, Julie says, you gotta forget about that. Don't remember everything, stop it. You know, I can't forget. That's part of the process of repentance too. It's like you can't let it go. In the years when I regularly updated our statement and our teachings to be more and more inclusive and including affirmation of trans people, and, 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 and we got to the end where we sacrificed our assets and buildings for LGBT inclusion. I think that is a good end. That's a positive end. We got to the place. I am proud of that. It is really hard for me to leave at this moment. I think it's the best choice for me. But I, it is, is stressful. It's difficult. It's painful. I want to be able to stay and see this through. I will, I will observe you from a distance with, good, with great interest. I don't know how not to do that. Maybe I'm not supposed to do that, but I, I, I you know. I care about where y'all go. It matters to me. You matter to me. You're my family still. You know, I might be moving out of the house, but you're still my family. You know, and I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm gonna submit to the same agreements that we made to, for the other pastors who have left Circle of Hope. That's the only right thing to do. But I am praying for you and hoping that we keep moving in this direction. But it does break my heart to think of the harm I caused. Even at my expense, I wasn't brave enough to come out in a church that wasn't affirming. People did. And they faced heat for it. Hostility, aggression, persecution. That's the only way to say it. So I wasn't as brave as them. I mean, I heard concerns of queer people and their allies, and I sometimes even shared them, but I led differently. 
and against their concerns. And that's a shameful thing I've done. So yeah, I am proud of where we are, but I can't just, I can't just hang my hat on that. You know, I've reached out to people in that article and otherwise and repented of the harm I've done as best as I can. You know, the two people quoted in that article, I wouldn't say I'm close with, but we've talked since then. My experience and this experience convicted me to take a stance, to stop trying to forge a third way. Especially when people's life depends on it. I mean, we're talking about their life. Queer kids that grow up in Christian households have a much higher chance of killing themselves. The suicidality of trans kids is super high. We're talking about their life. This is not politics. It is, it, that is what it is. It's not an issue between ideological poles. It's not a question of religious freedom, for goodness sake. We're talking about human life and dignity. And yeah, we struggled with taking a side, but I, I'm glad we did. We have to be straightforward about what we believe. We don't need to take, it, take someone out to coffee to offer them some confusing response about a plainly worded question. You know, that, that like messes with the person even. And if I feel shame about my beliefs, I should evaluate them. And a lot of people do as they exclude LGBTQI people. I do think they feel shame. I do think they think that it's wrong. And the reason I think so is because they have very elaborate defenses. When the truth is plain, you come up with a very complicated way to defend your side, right? Violence is so apparently wrong that the people uh, waging war have a very big uh, explanation for why they do such a thing. And the same is true of people who don't affirm queer people. For churches and people unable to take a moral stand for the sake of the lives and dignity of queer people, I believe one of the biggest growth edges then is rooting our choices in people's lives and not reducing them to ideological positions. It's not ideological to support queer people. It's just honoring their humanity. You know? And I, 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 am, I am ashamed of my time here for that and, and contributing to that. But I am grateful because, you know, I know how to sniff it out, too. It's like, I know, the, I know when the language is being used with me because I used it. There's no, there's no fooling me about this. I know what the argument is. I know what you're going to say. I know you're going to talk about identity in Christ. I know you're going to talk about um, not reducing someone to their sexual identity. I don't know why you're obsessed with mine if you're not reducing them. You know, like there's all sorts of issues with that. But I remember the language. I know the language. You know, I know that you all want to weave this with some nuance and thread some needle. You know, I know it. It's painful. I did it. So I'm not going to fall for it again. And, and, you know, the Mennonites don't have their house in order either, by the way. You know? And WPMF is, like, overwhelmingly white, too. So I'm, I'm not, like, it's not some honeymoon I'm going on, right? There's problems. But when we can love and include someone, there is no third way. We're following God's law when we do that. 
Maybe we get hung up like we do when we read the woman of the well story, but maybe it's because we bring a bias to God's love. So I hope that God can keep opening our eyes to the bigotry that sometimes we think becomes the law. And I hope that we continue to take a side with the oppressed. Um, and I, I leave you with that word. That's what I can give you. You know, I'm sorry for the harm that I caused while I was here. I am grateful for where we moved as a community and my part in it and your part in it. And a lot of you have hung around for a long time. Some of you have moved away across the country and come all the way back. That's cool. We don't necessarily deserve that. But I'm grateful that we have it. I'm grateful for you. Peace to you. Thanks for listening to Circle of Hope's Sunday Meeting Podcast. If you want to talk about it or get connected, visit circleofhope.church. You can also find us on Instagram or Facebook at circleofhopenet.